Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. A few weeks ago, I was asked by Oliver Webb Carter, the founder of Aspects of History, the magazine and the podcast, to talk about the historical context of Palestine and Israel, making sense of historical events from the late 19th century up to the current time. So I'm reposting here our conversation and I have edited it in order to add more material at the end, catching up with uh, current situations and offering more insights and analysis of my views and my opinions about uh, what's going on in Gaza and Israel. Thank you and I hope you're going to enjoy this uh, extra episode of Jerusalem Unplugged, Meeting Aspects of History. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the pod, which I wanted to do to give you dear listeners a bit of background on where we are today with Israel and Palestine. My guest is Roberto Mazza, a historian of the period of the 20th century when the Zionist movement developed and the State of Israel was formed in 1948. So today's chat covers the Balfour Declaration, the British Mandate for Palestine, all the way up to the Six-Day War in 1967. We also talk about the Holy City of Jerusalem and the leaders that came close to coexistence. A two-state solution is the only way both people can have a future, but is that even possible after those horrific terrorist attacks of the 7th of October? Roberto is the author of Jerusalem, From the Ottomans to the British, and I'd also recommend Simon Sebag Montefiore's Jerusalem, a biography. Coming up, I've got Kings and Queens of England and Britain on Saturday, with plenty more great history to come, including Winston Churchill, Romans and Goths, an SAS Origins Clash with Gavin Mortimer and Tom Petch, and much, much more. Please do rate, review, and share the pod for those who want a background on the Middle East crisis, but until then, I'll hand you over to myself and Roberto Mazza, talking Israel-Palestine. Roberto Mazza, welcome to the podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you on. Oliver, thanks a lot, first of all, for the perfect pronunciations of my name, which often in English is butchered into something else, which I got used to, but uh, that was wonderful. Thanks a lot. Uh, a pleasure. Well, you should, you should see me in a restaurant in London embarrassing my wife. Oh, so, goodness. <laughs> yes. So today, it's really great that, um, to have you on because we're going to be talking, and, and really I wanted to do this for the benefit of the listeners because... Obviously, we're in the midst of a pretty horrific time for the Middle East, Israel, the occupied territories, Palestine. And I think a lot of people probably find the 
reasons for where we are today a little bit overwhelming maybe and I, and so I, it was great to have you on to just talk about how we are where we are so for listeners we're not going to go back to sort of a thousand bc here i mean we could if we wanted but i think that would probably take about three hours at least what we're going to do today is start from about 1900 uh, roberto is a professor of the period he's author of jerusalem from the ottomans to the british so there's a link in the show notes for that and so roberto is going to come on and help us kind of get to where we are it's kicking off with 1900 and really roberto i wanted to start off asking this is around about this isn't the beginning of the story obviously but it is the start of around 1900 in britain there was a, a growth of a, a the zionist movement a, the idea behind creating a, a homeland for jewish people and so um is is that really a, a decent place to start do you think it is indeed, for two reasons. First of all, I want to highlight the fact that when we look at this period in time, whereas we have what in Europe was called a Jewish problem, I'm not entirely sure what always meant a Jewish problem, because this was a problem for the non-Jewish people as mostly anti-Semitic uh, people, but obviously was a problem for the Jews themselves who experienced anti-Semitism. When we look at uh, the Middle East, which was uh, ruled by the Ottoman Empire back then, there was no Jewish problem. Jews were part of the Ottoman uh, house, shall we call it like that. Uh, of course, they were still considered like fellow Christians, second-class citizens. This was due to the uh, millet system, which defined the internal structure of the Ottoman Empire. But Jews in general did not have the same experience as Jews in Europe. So it's not a surprise that it's in Europe, where at the beginning of the 20th century, so the beginning of the 1900 and earlier, even at the late 19th century, when you see the birth of nationalism within all of the nationalist movements, whether in Britain, in Germany, in Greece, in Italy, and so forth, you also have Jews who began to see themselves as being part of Europe, but also with an heritage that connected to the ancient land of Israel, Eretz Israel in Hebrew. That's where you see the birth of various forms of Zionism, as then later was known. So different ideologies about what is Jewish identity. Is it a religious identity? Is it a cultural identity? Is it an identity that should be developed in Europe and maybe exported with people back to the land of Israel, you know, these all competed, coexisted at the same time. So there is no such a thing as a one form of Zionism that developed towards the, you know, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. But there are various forms, and certainly one is of, uh, you know, famous uh, Herzl in Vienna, who wrote this famous book, The Judenstaat, The Jewish State, which, you know, is sort of a a book that talks about the idea of creating a Jewish entity somewhere. It doesn't necessarily say in Palestine, but you know the idea was to create a state. But as I said, there are others who are for more a rebirth of a cultural identity. Besides, one thing that was very clear to many, most of these Zionist uh, thinkers were not thinking about moving all of the Jews, whenever they thought about it, to Palestine, but mostly to remove those Jews that suffered violence at the ends of the rulers, particularly in Russia, because of pogroms, back to Palestine or somewhere that was safe. So it's quite interesting because most of the Zionists in Britain, in France, in Germany, or in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they didn't see themselves as those that should have benefited from moving somewhere else. They were fully integrated Jews, or at least this is what they thought about themselves. Obviously, later on, we saw how history unfolded, and we see that a lot of people still you know, saw Jews as separate entity. But they really wanted these Jews, in, mostly in Russia, uh, the, set, you know, the pale settlements in particular, to be removed from the dangers of their lives. And so this is where you have this emergence of various forms of Zionism. As I said, some were more focusing on cultural identity, some of a rebirth of the language of uh, 
sort of this idea of a new person, the new Jew, and others also thinking about more in practical terms, how do we solve this Jewish problem? How do we send these Jews that are constantly under threat somewhere else where they can be safe? And so that really solidifies behind a a letter that's written to Lord Rothschild by the Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour, where we this is really the first great step of of, of the establishment of a, a Jewish state. It is indeed, and what they're referring to is known as the Balfour Declaration, which was issued on November second, nineteen seventeen. Even though the letter itself had been uh, in the making for months, the first documents highlighting the sort of uh, ideas behind the uh, Balfour Declaration, the first drafts go back to April, uh, May 1917. So it took quite some time for the British government actually to put together this letter. The letter was published on November 2nd, 1917, which accidentally or incidentally uh, coincided with the date of the Russian Revolution. So eventually it was published once again a few days later. Later on, this also created, you know, birth of conspiracy theories. And, you you know, that's another story I'm digressing and uh, I'm not going to delve into that. So during the war, the British engage with a number of different actors, creating a sort of a inconsistent approach towards the Middle East. You know, there are these sort of free agreements or exchange of letters that occurred throughout the war. So first of all, the British engage with uh, Sharif Usahi of Mecca uh, in 1916. And, and essentially, they promised Sharif Hussein, who we need to remember, he was an Ottoman subject, so essentially an enemy, but the British promised a, a land for the Arabs, a state with even some borders, uh, ideally lines that could have been drawn uh, on a map in exchange for a rebellion against the Ottomans. That eventually materialized, but only later on, famously led by T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and, and of course was a very different uh, uh, rebellion in nature than the one that was originally planned. At the same time, a few months later, the British began engaging in a conversation that then became the infamous Sykes-Picot agreement with the French. Of course, they never bothered to tell the French that they were already engaged with the Arabs. But with the French, they carved out the Middle East, creating a map that later on became the basis for the map of the current Middle East. In 1917, then they start engaging with the Zionists, promising a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. So inconsistency upon inconsistency. Now, at the bottom of all of this, There's also another misunderstood and little studied document which was produced in 1915, which is called the De Bunsen Committee. Now, this is very interesting because this was an interdepartmental document. So essentially, the British cabinet brought together experts from different uh, departments, uh, creating scenarios for the future of the Ottoman Empire from uh, uh, the most optimistic, we're going to win the war, to we're going to lose the war. What is interesting, in every possible scenario, they had ideas about how to deal with the future of the Middle East. And in every scenario, the Ottoman Empire was almost gone. And the British saw themselves as a powerhouse in the region. So that speaks volume about also how the British saw themselves in a possible future in the region. you know, it's always important to remember these documents remain closed in the archives until the late 1960s. And, uh, you know, it's, so it's only in the last few decades that really historians began to look at this and try to make sense of, uh, you know, what was that the British were trying to think about the Middle East. What is interesting in general that up to the Balfour Declaration, Palestine was never an issue. Or if it was an issue, it was an issue because of the Christian holy places. But there is no coherent thinking about the Jews or the Zionists. So there is no such a thing as uh, Palestine becoming a land for the Zionists or for the Jewish people. This is only happening in 1917. And this is happening mostly because of the uh, necessities of propaganda and once again, stereotypes. So anti-Semitism. 
So they start engaging with uh, Chaim Weizmann. Chaim Weizmann was the leader of the British Zionist Federation in Britain. He was a professor at the University of Manchester, uh, originally from Russia. And he had access to the highest echelons of government. And I think there were cabinet members, weren't there, Roberto, in the British government who also believed quite strongly in uh, in the Zionist movement? Absolutely. And that's the other side of the coin. There were a number of cabinet members who were mostly imbued of religious uh, ideas, picking up from non-denominational churches, uh, Balfour himself, certainly later on, you know, other individuals who basically were supportive of Zionism for their own religious ideas, but also because they saw the Zionists as the perfect people to place in the Middle East. They're white, they're Westerners, they're Jewish. So there's also a difference, but they can and they could have been the perfect middleman in a future British Middle East. And this is a current thinking of the early 20th century. This is nothing new, uh, but certainly the, the British were able to take all of this kind of racial discourse into the Balfour Declaration. Obviously, the Balfour Declaration has also a history uh, which goes beyond the borders of Britain. We know that uh, the letter was sent twice to President Wilson in America for approval. Zionist and British officials traveled to America also to, uh, so to push uh, this idea of promising the Jews a land in Palestine, and certainly they found, uh, you know, and uh, I would say a good support. Not all American Jews were supportive of Zionism at that time, but certainly certain leaders were, and they embraced the idea of supporting a Jewish entity, a national home in Palestine. So this is a document that was not created uh, by accident. It was not created... Uh, in, in a matter of few days, was not just the byproduct of uh, uh, war propaganda, but it had deep roots. It was carefully fought. And at the same time, when you read the text, it's so vague that really shows that the British were making a promise, but they were not really fully committing, really. They promised a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. And at the same time, they made it clear that the civil and religious rights of the local population should have been respected. But the key point of this document is that they, in the document, they highlight the fact that the national rights of the Zionists should be promoted, whereas they never mentioned the national rights of the local population of Palestine. And this is where the major problems, you know, eventually began. And also the very fact that the Zionists later on were able to cash in you know, on the promise made by the British, and they use the Balfour Declaration as this letter, this promise that was made, and often they went back to, you know, members of the cabinet, members of the uh, uh, British mandate, so the, the governors to say, you promised this to us, now you need to keep your side of the promise. Uh, whereas the Palestinians didn't have this kind of power uh, to go back to the British and saying, well, this is our land, and you promised to someone else, and what are we going to do, right? So really, this is a crucial moment in the history of uh, this conflict, really. And in the wake of World War I, we have the Treaty of Versailles, which establishes various mandates, one of which is Palestine. And Palestine, in uh, the mandate of Palestine is, is a little bit larger than than one perhaps recognizes palestine for our listeners are probably going to get a bit confused between israel palestine palestine israel because the two almost um blend in, into each other but the mandate for palestine as it was given to britain in 1923 is much larger than the state of israel today sort of spreads into jordan doesn't it and so once the british have the mandate was their plan really to try and almost be, given what you've just uh, gone through, almost create a sort of halfway house so that there could be some kind of living space for both groups of people, both Palestinians and Jews who had settled there? I would say that would be uh, something that would surprise me if one day we're going to have documents suggesting that the British had that kind of thinking. The, the British really didn't... Uh, that they acknowledge from the very beginning the inconsistencies of all of the promises. 
And that's the reason why the original mandate included also what nowadays is Jordan and eventually was separated because uh, then the kingdom of Transjordan, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, was given to one of the son of Sharif Hussein of Mecca as a way to fulfill that promise that an Arab state would have been created after World War I as a result of uh, the Arab rebellion. And so, you know, you immediately have the creation of an artificial state, which never existed before, really. And at the same time, you know, the British also created the borders of Palestine, which correspond to the borders of Israel today, uh, mostly, obviously, with the Golanites that used to be part of Syria. Now they are part of Israel. But even those borders were totally artificial. There's never been an entity called Palestine within those borders. Palestine was the name of the region under the Ottomans, under the Arabs, uh, under the, the Romans. It was certainly known as Eretz Israel, so the land of Israel by the Jewish people, but mostly also known by the various regions, uh, Judea, Samaria, and so forth. So, you know, there is a lot of uh, artificial naming out there. Palestine was totally the most uh, common name and the name that would resonate uh, with almost everybody. What is interesting about the British mandate is that unlike the other mandates that were created uh, following the, you know, Versailles and particularly the San Remo Conference of 1920, the other mandates in Iraq and then the French obviously over Lebanon and Syria, French and British kind of ruled almost indirectly, the French more directly than the British, certainly. But Palestine became directly ruled by the British to the presence of the governor. And there were no signs that were really going to grant any independence or at least autonomy to any other groups. And, th and that's also part of the conflict because obviously the Palestinians are pushing for autonomy and independence. And the Zionist, again, while the Zionist and Jewish population is growing in Palestine, they keep pushing the British for independence for the creation of that Jewish entity, which was understood as a state that was designed as a promise in the Balfour Declaration. And in a sense, that battle was won when the mandate was established. The Zionists were able to have the Balfour Declaration inserted in the mandate, which made it legal. So again, the Zionists were able to push through the Balfour Declaration within the mandatory system, and now what was a promise published on every newspaper on November 2nd, 1917, a promise made by a member of a cabinet, Balfour, Lord Balfour, Arthur Balfour, to Rothschild, who was a banker. You know, he didn't have any official capacity, really. And yet now it's part of a mandate. It's literally at the beginning of a mandate. And so... Here it, is, here it is, and it's legal, and this is how the Zionists then start building up a parallel government in Palestine. First, through the Zionist Commission, which was established right after the British took over in 1918, and then with the establishment of a, of, a, of a mandate, the Zionists built up a parallel government known as the Jewish Agency, which really comprised of a health department, educational department, trade, commerce. Essentially, they were building up a state in the making just waiting for the British to go. So we then get World War II, where there's action taking place uh, across the Middle East. But uh, I guess the demands for a state are almost suspended until the end of the war. And then, of course, the Holocaust is something that's so horrific that I think we, of course, have to talk about because it becomes... I guess it makes the requirement for a Jewish state, I guess the argument for, from the victims of the Holocaust or those that survived the Holocaust, an argument for a Jewish state even stronger. And the West, which I think leading up to the uh, Second World War, we've had authors on, including Roger Morehouse, talking about the anti-Semitism in Europe beyond Nazi Germany, where, we, where the West, Western countries did not take in Jewish people or sufficient numbers of Jewish people. And so the new Jewish state is viewed as, a, as the, I suppose, the answer. And so really it'd be interesting to talk about the impact of the Holocaust on the creation of the, of the state. Before I talk about it, I want to just, uh, again, one, take a step back.
Zionist immigration into Palestine, which eventually the British acknowledged was a problem. And at the same time, obviously, we have the rise of uh, anti-Semitism throughout Europe, particularly in, in Germany with a takeover of the Nazi party. We have riots, massacres in 1920, in 1929, the Arab revolt against the British, which claimed the lives of thousands, both Palestinians, British, and Zionists. And, and eventually the rebellion was put down by the British with brutal measures. But it's also true, as a good friend of mine, great historians, uh, Ilel Cohen says, we need to look at the periods in between. The periods in between are very interesting because that's what people try to make sense of what happened. And uh, there's a lot of uh, going on. I mean, there's a lot of uh, exchange of ideas. Is there a way to coexist together? There are some Zionists who start engaging with the idea of uh, almost Arabized, learning the language, and more Palestinians are trying to see whether are there opportunities working with, uh, with the Zionists. So, you know, there are ups and downs. But at the same time, you have these nationalist ideologies that are becoming stronger and more radicalized. On the Zionist side, you have, uh, uh, you know, Vladimir Jabotinsky, who then became the leader of this, uh, uh, you know, right-wing movement, which essentially is the forefather of the current Likud party, uh, the Beitar movement. Essentially, the idea was, if we want a Jewish entity, we need to get rid of the Arabs. And on the other hand, you have, you know, strong nationalist uh, Palestinians who began also to preach the idea of, uh, we need to take weapons and arms to remove the Zionists from it. But, you know, these are, back then, extremes or edges. There's still a lot of going on. So we really should look more at the larger belly and not the tip of what's going on. And then, of course, World War II starts. And what is interesting about Palestine is that it was fairly well insulated from the conflict. Uh, you know, right at the beginning of the war, the British occupied uh, Lebanon and Syria, you know, kicking out the French out of there as soon as the French, as soon as France fell to the Germans. Obviously, the British were already in Egypt. So essentially, Palestine was uh, insulated and it was a key area because through Haifa, you have the pipelines coming from Iraq providing oil to the British. So both had to be protected. And at the same time, I think it's important to remember that both Zionists and Arabs, not in large numbers, many just remained in Palestine, but numbers of both Zionists and Arabs served with the British. Arabs, just mixed units, the Zionists created their own unit. And I always like to remind this to students often that parts of the region where I grew up in Emilia-Romagna, Northern Italy, were actually liberated by Zionist units, which always sounds strange because people always think about the British, the American, the local resistance. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Actually, it's interesting. Some towns and cities were liberated by, by Zionist units. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a anecdote, but I think it's important to show that. The Middle East is not the main site of the Holocaust. Germany is, Italy is, Poland, Hungary, Romania. Certainly is different the case of those uh, Jews that were in Greek islands originally you know, under uh, Italian rule. And then when the Nazi took over after the collapse of uh, the Italian fascist regimes, those were almost entirely exterminated. I think it's important to highlight this difference because even the Jews that are from the Middle East have a very different memory and understanding of the Holocaust compared to those from Europe. And it's also important to remember that the Palestinians, the Arabs, are not and were never responsible for the Holocaust. Now, I know a lot of people like, uh, particularly on Twitter or X, as we're going to call it nowadays, to sometimes show the picture of uh, Aj Alamin Husseini, who was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, visiting Hitler, shaking his hands, and even in Recent times, uh, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu of Israel said, well, if it was not for some Muslim visiting Hitler, then the Germans would have not killed all of the Jews, which is... Twitter's just this kind of disaster for any Absolutely. kind it of is. A nuanced conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. Aja Amin Ulusseini visited Germany. This is true. Hitler, as we know from the uh, reports of that meeting, was not even happy to shake and with him, because in the end, he's an Arab, he's a Semite. So this has to be clear. And the whole purpose of the visit was to 
basically asked the Germans to push the British out. This was an anti-British uh, photo op, as we would call today. But it's also important to remember that Aj Amin Husseini didn't have much support back in Palestine. A lot of Palestinians, and uh, you know, you can read it through the press. Aj Amin Husseini didn't have much support back in Palestine. A lot of Palestinians, and uh, you know, you can read it through the press, the diaries. Didn't really look at him with any interest. Obviously, there were those who supported his, their, you know, his ideas to use also violence if necessary to get rid of the British and, and the Zionists. But we are in the middle of a war, and uh, in general, Palestinians were supportive of this status quo. Obviously, there were already signs that well, the war is going to end, something's going to happen. But that was again not in the ideas of many Palestinians back then. And so it was not really successful, but it certainly used as a propaganda tool. Obviously, with the end of the Holocaust, those who survived, and there are amazing works that have been written about it, tried to go back to their houses. Those houses were gone or occupied by other people. And remember, I always teach my students, remember that the last pogrom took place in Poland after the war. So the war for the Jews didn't end in 1945, January 27, with the liberation of Auschwitz, but actually continued because they couldn't find anything. And many, obviously, were now moving to Palestine. Some were Zionists, some were not. It was, as you said earlier, a safe place to go. But now the British are in trouble. They no longer admitting Jews. They understood that the Arabs were mounting a rebellion, even though you find interesting writings of many Palestinians being very sympathetic, they understand what the Jews went through. But they also say, we're not guilty of this. Yes, we can accommodate some. Let's try to find some solution. But there is a form of resistance to that. In the end, as many say back then, is you did it. European, you, you, know, you find this word often, you frangy. So you know, it's an old word to define the French from the Crusader period of time. But you Europeans are responsible. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news all right i'll do it. sign up now and you'll get unlimited for 15 dollars a month in six months of paramount plus essential plan on us mintmobile.com slash switch upfront payment of 45 dollars, equivalent to 15 dollars per month unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month face lower speeds videos at 480p active mint customers by 531 24 get six months of paramount plus essential plan auto renews after six months offer ends may 31st 2024 separate paramount plus registration required terms and conditions apply if rated pg everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Prior to the Second World War, the British put limits on the numbers of Jews being shifted into um, into Palestine. How did that change after the Second World War? Was you know that knowledge of the Holocaust mean that a lot more Jews were um, were moved over? What what were the populations we're talking about between forty five and forty eight? Well, we certainly have a growing population of Zionist throughout the 1920s and 
even up to the moment when uh, some white papers were produced and eventually Zionist immigration was uh, tied to economic development. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you find plenty of illegal immigration of Zionists into, into Palestine, which continued anyway. Even after World War II, obviously the British prevented Jews to go to Palestine. And, you know, we have plenty of boats that are stopped on the way to Palestine. Or when the uh, Jews have arrived, they are then taken into new camps, sometimes redirected to other places, pushed to go to America, South Africa, other places. And again, because the British understand that, uh, you know, they can't manage or they can no longer manage the growing discontent of the Arabs. And certainly this, you know, migration of Holocaust survivors is putting a lot of pressure. I should and mention then, there are, there are sorry to interrupt you there Roberto yeah. but I, I should mention really that there are terrorist attacks on the British troops in uh, in this period aren't there correct mostly staged by Jewish uh, militant organizations some of them you know are recognized as terrorist organizations others like the Haganah which then became the uh, Israel Defense Force was recognized as a militia but eventually you have uh, you know, the Stern gang and others who stage attacks against the, the British. And this is actually what led the British eventually to relinquish the mandate and to essentially claim that they were no longer able to rule Palestine. And, you know, first they sent everything to the newly created United Nations, which then produced the famous partition plan for mandatory Palestine in uh, November 1947. And essentially that's the beginning of the civil war, uh, which saw, first of all, the free actors of the British somewhere in the middle, Zionist uh, militia, Palestinian militia, and eventually that became open war uh, upon the declaration of independence uh, read by David Ben-Gurion on May 14, 1948. And uh, that's the beginning, uh, also the, the official beginning uh, of the war. Now the Palestinians understood that the British were leaving, and, and essentially they had been left with their own devices. And they also understood they were not capable alone to face that enemy. Now, this is like one of those debated issue. I, I'm not a military historian, but certainly it's true that the Palestinians understood that they didn't have the skills, the preparation, nor the weaponry to fight the war. And that's why you, can't, you, you start seeing also appeals made to surrounding countries. So, you know, Palestinians appealed to the Egyptians, to the Syrians, to the Lebanese. Uh, to the Jordanians, to the Iraqis, to receive help, which eventually will materialize in 1948, even though eventually they lost the war. But, you know, there's also this kind of uh, unbalance from the very beginning. You know, in the face of the myth of David and Goliath, uh, it's also true that the Zionists, mostly because many of them served uh, in the British army, and so they had acquired, you know, they acquired military skills, and at the same time, they were able to import guns and weaponry coming from Europe right at the end of the war. Again, sometimes uh, intermixed with a human cargo. So while they were taking uh, Holocaust survivors, were also taking weapons. But you also asked about population. I think this is very important. Still, by 1948, the largest majority of uh, people in Palestine are Arab Palestinians, Christian Muslims. Uh, obviously, the Jewish population has increased by, by then, uh, becoming an important factor of almost 40% of the population, but they're still a minority. And, and as I said, many are fresh migrants uh, from Europe. There's another set of migrants that will arrive later on, and these are Jews coming from the Middle East, mostly as a result of the creation of the State of Israel and the State of War. Of 1948, but again, that's a different story. Well, what's interesting is if one looks at the map of Israel today, it's it's very different to the map of 1947, and obviously the map changes over a series of wars um, in the in the next few decades. But I just wanted to um, just talk a bit about Jerusalem because I think that's something that might it's a hugely important symbolic city for. Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And Jerusalem is 
effectively divided by the United Nations at this time, isn't it, Roberto? Well, Jerusalem is divided in 1948 as a result of the war and the armistice that was signed later on in 1949. So what we have a creation of a green line, which is then dividing West Jerusalem. Technically, it's not the West, but it means it's West of the green line, which is under Israeli rule, and then East Jerusalem, which is then under Jordanian rule. And East Jerusalem includes also the old city of Jerusalem, where the largest majority of religious buildings, institutions, and symbols are contained. Many are also outside the old city, but obviously the old city is this uh, large box uh, filled with uh, religious items, as sometimes I call them. Now, what happened to Jerusalem? Essentially, between 1948 and 1967, Jerusalem is very much like uh, Berlin. There is no wall, uh, but there are fences, barbed wire separating the city. There is one gate, Bandermau Gate, that uh, gives a possibility to access you know, the west from the east and vice versa, the east from the west. So it's the only port of entry or exit, which is open occasionally for a variety of reasons. And essentially, the two cities develop in completely different ways. West Jerusalem becomes a, you know, a modern city. Uh, there's nothing really historical other than a few buildings. Uh, many Israelis settled down over there, uh, mostly secular at the beginning. Then you have a growth of religious uh, Jews coming to live close to what is the main uh, site. And at the same time, East Jerusalem is under Jordanian rule. It's actually experiencing an interesting uh, period of time. It's a very cosmopolitan city back then. It's open for tourism. The Jordanians are opening the city. This is a moment where you have the opening of uh, numerous hotels, sort of uh, places that could be rent, staying or long stay, restaurants and services. Many Europeans travel uh, to the old city of Jerusalem. And it is a city that develops again, uh, almost independently from West Jerusalem, uh, in, in a sense that the, the connections are minimal, but there are connections. And these are very interesting because, you know, this is what historians have been working in, in recent times. People talk to each other by the fence. Uh, we now know of many people that were, you know, expelled from different places of Jerusalem. There were areas of West Jerusalem inhabited by Palestinians who left. And obviously the old Jewish community living in the old city had been expelled to. But what is interesting is that the Israeli government began to settle Arabs in some areas of West Jerusalem. And sometimes these Arabs began to talk to Palestinians across the fence. You know, they speak the same language. They're curious to know each other. And, you know, these are, again, anecdotal, but they're very important elements showing that there is a fence, there is barbed wire, but the city is not entirely isolated from each other. But they do follow different developments, indeed. And in West Jerusalem, there is a growing sense of curiosity about what's on the other side, right? Because, again, uh, particularly for the Jews in West Jerusalem, the other side, it means the Western Wall, the old city of Jerusalem you know, the, the very center of Jewish spirituality. And as I said, uh, on the side of East Jerusalem, Jerusalem becomes, as I said, fairly cosmopolitan, but that doesn't mean the Palestinians feel uh, Jordanians, nor they see themselves as being part of Jordan in the long run. Actually, this is a moment where a lot of publications are being published, where they still, you know, making a point, like, we're still Palestinians, this is a uh, temporary. You know, despite the fact that the Jordanian extends citizenship to many Palestinians, uh, and they even try to make Jerusalem a second capital of Jordan. You know, the king visits often Jerusalem, displaying uh, his affection for the city. But many Palestinians are like, hold on a second. You know, we're Palestinians. This is our city. Now we are in these situations. We don't know what's going to happen next. But it's also true that the city, as I said, develops. And remember, this is also the place where, you know, you, you have uh, international visits uh, coming through. So Jerusalem is experiencing these 20 years between 1948 and 1967 of uh, diverse development, 
division, small but still relevant communication between the parts, which then ends dramatically in June 1967, when the Israeli IDF forces take over the city as a result of a six-day war, and uh, they move into the city. And dramatically, the first thing they do is to demolish the Maghrebi quarter, a quarter that was built in the 11th century and uh, had been in existence for almost 1,000 years right in front of the Western Wall in order to create what we all know, this iconic image of the Western Wall Plaza where all of the Jews and visitors go and pray against uh, the Western Wall. But we need to remember there was a neighborhood right there, inhabited by Moroccans, Mugrebi as you know, Moroccan Muslims, uh, who had been there for literally almost a millennia. And this was demolished overnight. So it was a dramatic entry. And at the same time, Again, it's very interesting to listen to Jews who you know, move to visit the city with curiosity. This is also the moment when, once again, I want to mention my friend, colleague, Hillel Cohen, who was a child when you know, this happened and he went to visit the old city. And in an interview that I had with him, he was talking about how he was like, you know, curious about the other side. But this is also the moment he understood as a child that there were other people speaking another language there who he knew nothing about, and eventually became curious, and he became an Arab, Arabic speaker and a scholar. But at the same time, this is a dramatic moment, because you know, this is also about sovereignty, it's about possession of holy places. And this is the moment where this major religious war really began, you know, about who owns what. You also have a beginning of this uh, religious conflict, which involves ownership and claims over this tiny very complex area, the Western Wall, which is against the Aram al-Sharif. So this uh, sort of hills with all of the uh, Muslim holy sites, the third holy site in Islam. And, you know, this is a conflict that's been going on ever 967, essentially. Any reasonable person, particularly looking at what's going on today, wants peace. Was there a moment between 48 to 67, and I know... We haven't gone into too much detail about sort of around 48, the war in 48, where, where I think is now called the Nakba, this driving of Palestinians away from their land and then leaving them in various places that I'm going to put a few links in for listeners so you can see the maps. It really helps. Um, but what I wanted to ask was, even with that knowledge of the, the dispossession in 48, was there a period ever between that and the 67 war, which now, when the Israeli Defense Force moved into what is now known as the occupied territories, was there a period where that could have been the lands that people had, could have, it could have been a, a long-term solution, despite the fact that in 67, Israel went to war with Jordan, Egypt, Syria, and Lebanon. Now, as historians, I should be very careful to say categorically yes or no. But I feel, given the evidence and obviously the history that we know, that a safe answer is no. There is no window between 1948 and 67, and for a variety of reasons. One, because the Israeli didn't have any interest in essentially changing you know, the direction. I mean, maybe they wanted peace with the surrounding countries, which is true, but they were not interested in, you know, readmitting the Palestinian refugees. That would have changed the demographic balance. So that would have been absolutely impossible for the Israeli to sign any peace agreement with the surrounding countries, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Jordan, because that would have meant to essentially respect the UN resolution that allowed for the return of the Palestinian refugees. But it's also true that Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, they didn't have much interest to change the status. And again, they might have been interested in signing an agreement with Israel, but eventually, you know, for the Jordanian to control the West Bank was, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a positive, you know, 
thing for them because they were in control of the most uh, economic productive area of Jordan. So, you know, economically speaking, it made sense for the Jordanians to keep uh, the West Bank under control. Now, maybe the Egyptians uh, could have released Gaza somehow. It was far away from the center. But even the Egyptians had their own interest not to give away Gaza. In the end, uh, you know, why giving it to the Palestinians? Why creating a new entity where you can actually have uh, this highly populated area, not as of today, but certainly still highly populated area with uh, access to the Mediterranean, a little bit less complex area than the rest of Egypt and very close to an enemy. Israel, not in the desert, like, you know, a, a border in the Sinai Peninsula. So there are a variety of reasons why there were no windows. In fact, if we're talking about windows, you have more and better windows during, you know, the mandate period, where again, different ideas were developed, where dialogue was possible. And there are, again, historians. One um, is an Israeli historian working in Britain, Yair Wallach, who's really working on these Zionist voices, uh, obviously then disappear from the mainstream discourse, who were trying to find bridges, you know, to suggest the idea, well, we're here, we need to Arabize, we at least need to learn Arabic and deal with our neighbors, not only because they are the majority, because we need to live with them. But then all of these voices were pushed away, you know, and forgotten really in history. So they have become liminal, marginalized voices, but they're very important, showing that there were windows. And the same time is true with a number of Palestinians who understood, you know, that there were possibilities. And then the next window is very much in the 1990s. So we have to go to Itzhak Rabin, who understood that the war was no longer a possibility. But we also know what happened. He was killed by a Jewish extremist who obviously understood the opposite, that war was the only, and violence was the only way to keep the Palestinian in their place. So, uh, so there are not many windows. And, no. and that's one of the problems. The windows open, and when they open, we're all very happy, particularly in the West, or like, finally, but we often misunderstand what it means a window for peace for the Palestinians and Israelis in Palestine and Israel, which may be very different from our understanding. We would love, you know, to sign a peace agreement on the spot. Think about, uh, you know, President Trump, who thought about the Abraham Accords as like, well, we sign agreements with uh, Arab countries between Israel and, you know, the Gulf and uh, the neighboring countries. And then that's it. The Palestinians are happy. Or they're isolated, so they've got nowhere to go. Right. Exactly. And so you want to push them under the rugs. And this has been you know, a constant uh, in the past uh, seven decades, essentially after 1967. But we know that it's just not simply going away. Many Israeli commentators, even in the past few days, wrote extensively about it. If we thought that the Palestinians could simply disappear, then we were deeply wrong. And you can find plenty of articles on Ares and even the Jerusalem Post. They are exactly pointing out that, that they've been mistaken ideas about uh, this point. So do you think the issues have been left to, I mean, we see that in Gaza, you have Hamas in control, in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority, and then on the border of uh, northern Israel and southern Lebanon, you have Hezbollah in control. And then in Israel, we have a quite a right-wing government in particular with with some very right-wing individuals in the cabinet. Are we now at the point where we've left, there is no center ground anymore, and these attacks that we've seen most recently, with your historian's hat on, we're now at the point where there are so many extremes, the cycle of violence will continue, and peace is as far away as it will ever be? That would be a good assumption, even though with my historian hat, actually I believe that this is a moment where a window can be opened because the stakes are so high for everybody. That would be the moment to sit down, bring your own bags, because you can't ask all of these people not to bring their own bags, their claims, their... Uh, pain and suffering, and then observe even their ideas. Bring the bags, but sit down around the table because the stakes are so high 
that everybody's going to suffer even more. But that requires an act of faith, right? And uh, it's very hard to ask of someone who's so involved in warfare, whether it's the Israeli government or Hamas, to take a step back and say, now it's the moment. And again, we have examples not a long time ago when, you know, after the Yom Kippur War of 1973, the then president of Egypt, Sadat, simply got on a plane in 77 and flew to Jerusalem. And the Israeli didn't know exactly what was going to happen. There were even reports that said, well, this is an attack. He's coming with bombs and military, you know, inside the plane. So this is a Trojan horse. They didn't know. And eventually Sadat paid with his own life what it did. He just changed the rules of the game. He knew that at that moment, no one could have started another war against Israel. And despite the tensions, you know, that everything suggested that was not the right moment, he did it. So he literally took the rules and just threw them in the bin. But Roberto, you... You're right. This maybe at the moment of extremes and where you think there's no hope, it's the time for someone to step forward. But you've mentioned Sadat and Rabin, both of whom were assassinated. This is always going to be a risk for any leader on any side who wants to take that risk. It's almost inevitable. I mean, I, again, as historians, I believe that there are always endless possibilities. Nothing is predetermined. But history tells me that often those leaders that chose Difficult paths, unusual paths, unorthodox paths, many times ended up being with their lives. I mean, you know, think about all of the leaders of the civil rights movements in America, JFK himself. I mean, you have plenty of these examples. So if you are a leader and you're thinking to change the rules, I'm sure you know deeply in your heart that what may happen is that you're going to pay the ultimate price with your life. Is it worth right then? To think about it, and again, this is about leadership. If you are, you know, if you're a true leader, maybe you want to think about it. This is not about me and my life. This is about the greater good. But when you look at the people involved nowadays, honestly, I don't see anybody with that kind of courage and bravery. Not on a mass side, not Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, and the PA, while not directly involved, I don't see either Mahmoud Abbas, you know, taking that stand. And so it's. We don't have that kind of leadership, and yet the window—it's there. That could be a possibility, right? Uh, but it's—it's it's very hard to think in those terms. I mean, really, you know, given the current situation, given what's going on, do these leaders really care about civilian lives and the population? Sometimes, this is the question we should ask because when we when see this, as you call it, an endless cycle of violence, it feels like really they don't care too much about uh, civilian life. It, as a historian, with my historian head, I'm very much reminded of World War I, where you had this military leader and political leader sitting in Germany, France, and Britain, sending hundreds of thousands of young soldiers to die on a single day for a useless battle. So I know it's a tough comparison, but you know sometimes this is the way I feel as a historian. Well, the, the problems of the Middle East by far outlasted the length of the First World War, and tragically so. This has been a, a really fascinating chat. From what you've just been saying, there is a window, but we need a leader or leaders to step forward, and there doesn't look like there are any. No, it doesn't. As this recast that was recorded in October and is now published in December, just want to add and reinforce my last thoughts with Oliver. Reflecting upon the actors involved, the Israeli government, Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, then it feels that these three are all run by middle-aged men caring about their own interest only. Bibi Netanyahu, Itamar Ben-Gvir, Bezalel Smotrich, they only care about their political goals, survival and expansion of Israel control over the West Bank and Gaza. Similarly, Hamas has an vested interest to survive and perhaps revive in some form and shape their projects to establish a sort of Islamic entity in Gaza. Besides, remember, 
that is exactly what Hamas asked a few years back to Bibi. We will not shoot rockets. Let us live here and you know, establish our own recognized Islamic government. Does that mean they care about the local Palestinians? No, not really. It's enough said to look at all of the various surveys carried out before October 7, where the largest majority of Palestinians did not support Hamas. Even though some of them, they probably received some sort of a stipend and salaries. But yet, when free to express themselves, it's obvious that Hamas was and is a dictatorship. And as well, when we think about the PA, the Palestinian Authority, a rotten form of government that had become some sort of a pariah of what it could have been, also because of the the work of Bibi in diminishing the power of this institution, but also because of the fact that Abbas has become, in time, a dictator himself, someone who tried once to call for elections, but I would say that probably, happily, cancelled them, even though he was pushed by mostly Israel and the Americans to do, do so. But the reality is that he's enjoying his own power, and many are obviously you know, benefiting from this sort of uh, institution. How do we get out of this, right? Here we're talking about the lives of millions, in fact, of women, children, men, future generations to come. And the politics is discussed among men who only care about themselves. And while maybe out there they're using rhetoric, which sounds very powerful to their own audiences, the reality is that, once again, they only care about themselves. There were a number of questions about uh, Gaza and the history of Gaza, and as I said, I would definitely refer to other historians, uh, you know, Dotan Alevi being one of them, and uh, those of you that they may have access to Arabic, a knowledge of Arabic, certainly the, the old book by Arif al-Arif, Tariq Gaza, who is you know, an interesting history of Gaza, um, written during the British mandate that, you know, it, it's a fascinating book, uh, but certainly provides a lot of uh, interesting information about Gaza and the people of Gaza. But I want to just focus on the question of Gaza and the Gaza Strip because that came out uh, in a number of questions. And I want to remind listeners that the concept of the Gaza Strip is connected to 1948. There was no such a thing as Gaza Strip before 1948. It's because of the Nakba that we have the creation of this uh, small strip of land. And, and Gaza somehow had become this entire area. But, you know, there are other villages and towns. And now, given the events, uh, the current events, probably people have become more familiar with different names around uh, the Gaza Strip, not just Gaza City. And I think this is important to highlight because, again, it tells us about, you know, simplifications, lack of understanding particularly in relation to uh, who are Gazans and uh, the fact that many were surprised to hear that there are refugee camps uh, like Jabalia camp in Gaza. And these are were all refugees that came originally uh, during the Nakba from Ashkelon, Ashdod, Derot, so surrounding places, and they all found refuge in Gaza and they eventually became Gazans themselves, but they still live in those refugee camps. So not only the geography of Gaza changed as a result of the Nakba, and so now we have a creation of a Gaza Strip, but we also see a major demographic change where we have the influx of all of these uh, Palestinians who are not necessarily connected with the city of Gaza in the previous period. Gaza acted as a regional center, but it's actually true that most of these uh, people were more attracted by you know, Jaffa. So at some point, we also have uh, a shift you know, in kind of local cultures, you know, that was more Jaffa oriented. And now, after 48, become obviously uh, out of necessity more Gazan oriented. So I just wanted to, uh, you know, end uh, with this kind of distinction because I think it's important uh, and highlights the complexities of the region and also our understanding of the history of Gaza, the history of the Gaza Strip, and also the history of the local. You know. Roberto, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, you can get hold of me on X or history at aspectsofhistory.com. Please do share, rate and review. But until then, thank you and good night. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.